Okay, let's open to Jeremiah chapter 18, please. Thank you for coming out tonight or for tuning in tonight. Our text is Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. We'll be considering the potter and the clay. So it'd be good for you to open your Bible there and please follow along as I read. Jeremiah chapter 18, reading from verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now therefore go to speak to the man of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way to make your ways and your doings good. And they said, There is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices. And we will every one do the imagination of his evil heart. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, ask ye now among the heathen who, asked, who hath heard such things. The virgin of Israel hath done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon, which cometh from the rock of the field? Or shall the cold flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken? Because my people hath forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity. And they have caused to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in paths in a way not cast up, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Amen. Now let's pray. Now, Father, thank you for your word. We do thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to study it. And we ask uh, that you would teach us, help us to understand your word and to apply it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when was the last time that you saw something in your day-to-day -day life and it reminded you of a spiritual truth or proved to be a helpful illustration of a spiritual reality? Now, this is a rich and wonderful practice, and one that I would suggest gets neglected. Okay, there are so many spiritual object lessons around us. You know, there's a danger of over-spiritualizing everything, I understand that. But I tend to think that we miss so many illustrations and metaphors in life that could turn our attention to the Lord. Now, the Puritans spoke of occasional meditation, and what they meant by that is spiritualizing the natural things that they come across in the day-to-day -day moments. 
Now, this practice is to be governed by Scripture, and one needs to be uh, very aware that it doesn't get unreasonable. And yet there's much spiritual profit to be found if we have the ability to allow the mundane things to fuel spiritual meditation. And the Bible does this quite a lot. It takes mundane things of life and uses them to teach or to illustrate a spiritual lesson. There are lots of images, metaphors and parables throughout the scriptures. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and this is true in biblical revelation. Although it's a word picture, it's not a drawing or a painting, yet they often help us to comprehend deep truth. Okay, Jesus did this an awful lot. Okay, he took something that everyone was familiar with and taught a spiritual truth. Okay, now, furthermore, another benefit of this teaching is it's very memorable. It's far easier to remember a story or an illustration. Okay, a lot of us, if we got talking about sermons we could remember, it's normally the illustration we remember, not the point of the sermon. Okay, so, so these are vital for both comprehension and also for memorability. And one such image is employed in our text, and it is the potter and the clay. But before we get to that, there are some hermeneutical pitfalls that we do need to be aware of when we consider these images, these metaphors, and these parables throughout the Bible. And here are four pitfalls that we need to keep in mind. Okay, the first one is this. Don't push the metaphor too far. Okay, there's a real danger that the image is dug into so deeply that we end up dredging up things that were never intended by the original author. We seek to wring the metaphor dry of absolutely every possible nuance, and we can take this too far. So one thing to keep in mind, when an image or a metaphor is used, there's usually one main idea, or perhaps two, that the author is seeking to illustrate or explain. And once that's discovered, don't try and push beyond that. So don't go further than the writer's main intention. Okay, their goal is to help you grasp the central point, not for you to explore all of these okay, fine intricacies and hidden meanings. You know, I, I found something that no one has ever seen before. Now, Pastor Davies used to say to us at college, if you ever say that, you're wrong. Okay, because people have been studying for thousands and thousands of years, and if you happen to find something that no one else has ever seen, 99.999% you know, of the time, you're wrong. Okay, and also, okay, it doesn't make sense to dig and dig and dig within illustrations, because what's the point of an illustration? It's to illustrate the point. Okay, so it's very counterintuitive to use an illustration which someone has to dig and dig and dig to find the meaning of that illustration. So we have to be careful that we don't push metaphors too far. Number two, don't read other uses of the same metaphor into the text. Okay, this one is a little trickier because scripture is to interpret scripture. That's a golden rule of biblical interpretation. And yet it's possible to use the same metaphor and have a very different intention. Okay, and context is the determining factor. So when we see the potter and the clay here in Jeremiah 18, we are to automatically assume that it means the exact same thing that 
Isaiah did when he used the same metaphor. They aren't necessarily communicating the same message. And in fact, they have very different intentions that they're seeking to communicate. Number three, don't read our theological systems into the text. Okay, and this actually applies to, to all scripture. Okay, we need to understand that the Bible governs our theology. Our theology doesn't govern the Bible. Okay, I hope you can see that distinction. Okay, if you hold to a certain belief and you're reading this portion of scripture, like, well, the scripture contradicts. Okay, your theology is wrong, not the Bible. Okay, now, I, I understand that you know, we all have worldviews, okay, we all have beliefs, and that does influence how we interpret things, and that's unavoidable. And yet we do need to be very careful not to force our theological system into the text. We, we can't make a text mean something to suit our theology. If the plain and undebatable meaning of the text contradicts our theology, we need to examine our theology not the text. And number four, who it was written to or about. So it's essential in order to understand the Bible correctly that we know who it was written to because this governs our interpretation and even to a lesser extent our application. So the text before us, this is in the Old Covenant, it's about nations and how God would deal or judge the nations. So we need to ask who and what is in focus, and that needs to govern our understanding of the text. So we need to have these potential pitfalls in mind as we come to images and metaphors throughout the Bible. Okay, we need to have them in our mind tonight as we consider the potter and the clay. So what is this metaphor intending to teach both the original audience and us? Okay, that's the question that I want to consider and we're going to do this under three headings. The first being the metaphor. You know, the Lord often had his prophets use object lessons, and this is one such case. And you'll notice in verse 1, it's made clear that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And this continues to undermine the unfair accusations that had been slung at Jeremiah. Okay, Jeremiah, you are a false prophet. Okay, but this upcoming sermon centered on this metaphor was from the Lord. This was not some crazy idea that Jeremiah invented. Now, Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house. Uh, and that's a bit of a funny phrase. We're not talking about the cult that exists in our time. It's the potter's house in, in Auburn. Okay, we're not talking about potter's house. We're talking about a potter who works in his house. Okay, so at the potter's house, and if he went there, the Lord would give him the message. Okay, and understand, this is a test of obedience for Jeremiah. Okay, it wouldn't be hard for him to think, Lord, really? Why do I have to go to the potter's house? Why can't you just tell me right here? But credit to Jeremiah, he obeyed, and he went to the potter's house, and it was only after he obeyed, he received the message from the Lord, okay, obeyed what the Lord had told him, and then the Lord gave him more. Okay, and there's a spiritual principle there. Now, at this time in history, there would have been a lot of potters. Okay, there was no Kmart back then to get some cheap cups and plates. All household crockery was crafted by hand out of clay. 
Oh, it's possible that most of the potters lived in the same area. It's interesting. In Jeremiah 37, 21, there's a reference to the baker's street, okay, which implies that most of the bakers were in a similar area. And that could also be true of the potters. It's interesting that in both verse 2 and in verse 3, it says down to the potter's house, which seems to imply it's outside of the city. Remembering Jerusalem is high up. Some scholars think this is referencing the Hinnom Valley, and that may or may not be the case. Now, we don't know what potter's house the prophet went to. Perhaps he already knew one. Uh, that's possible. But we're told that he began to watch the potter. He began to, to watch him do his work. It seems likely there was probably some dialogue between them. Jeremiah talking, what are you making? How long does this normally take? Can I watch you work? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like people watching me work. Uh, there's a bit of a joke in, in a trade. You'll charge $50 an hour if no one's there. You'll charge $60 an hour if the owner's watching. You'll charge $70 an hour if the owner wants to help. Um, I think it's a joke, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's true. Um, and I wonder if the potter felt that way. So why is this guy watching me? He's, he's been here forever. You know, we, we, we're not sure. But I, I do wonder how Jeremiah felt at this moment. Okay, was he curious about why the Lord brought him here? Okay, why am I at the potter's house? Now, we have no record of how he felt, but we're told what he saw, okay, what he witnessed. Verse 3 says, he wrought a work on the wheels. Okay, notice it's wheels, plural. Okay, and this helps to explain the process. Okay, one commentator offered this explanation of the process. He said, the lower wheel was turned with the feet. It was attached by an axle to the upper wheel. As the lower wheel was turned... The upper wheel on which the lump of clay was placed rotated. As the wheel turned, the potter skillfully shaped the clay into a vessel by the pressure of his fingers against the pliable material. And it was this that Jeremiah was watching. Now again, I don't know about you, but I actually quite enjoy watching someone who is highly skilled at what they do Work. You know, when I was building, I used to admire like a masterful tiler or bricklayer or painter. You just watch them do their job and you think, wow, they made that look really, really easy. And then you go and try it yourself and it's like, well, this isn't really easy. It's like if you watch a professional painter, they'll be cutting in and they'll be, you know, walking like at that speed. And then you try and do it and it's like up and down and your paint's everywhere. Or if you try and watch a bricklayer, they get their mud and they flick it on, put it on really quick. You try and do it, it falls off every single time. Okay, so it always amazed me watching someone who was skilled. And, and another thing that I enjoyed to watch, you know, I'm a country boy, is watching good cattle dogs at work. It's amazing. You'd have a paddock, the cows are everywhere, they'd be a couple hundred meters away. Three dogs will jump off the back of the ute, they'll round up all the cows and bring them straight to the farmer, and they just respond to a whistle, okay, one small whistle. And it's, a, it's amazing to watch. There's not too much of that in Sydney, of course, but you know, perhaps you like to watch you know, a musician or, or an artist or, or there's some other craft. You know, it's wonderful to watch a master at work, and I'm sure pottery is no different. Now, there was one particular thing that Jeremiah noticed. He was watching as the hands of the potter crafted the lump 
of clay. Or it's evident that he had something in mind that he was making, but the clay isn't responding. It isn't taking shape. It isn't cooperating. There was something wrong with it. Okay, verse 4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he was desiring to make, let's say, a glorious vase, but the stubborn clay wasn't taking shape. It was marred. There was some impurity, some inconsistency. The potter couldn't do what he wanted, so being the potter, he made the decision to do something else with it. So instead of a vase, he made a plate. So this is what Jeremiah witnessed. And it was this that the Lord was going to use to illustrate the message. The potter at his wheel with a piece of clay that wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. Okay, that's the metaphor. But what does this mean? Okay, that's our second point. The message of the metaphor. So having watched this potter for some time and making the observation about the clay, the Lord now tells Jeremiah the message. And it's illustrated by the potter and the clay that had been observed. Okay, that's why the Lord made Jeremiah take this journey. Now in this explanation, the Lord is the potter. Okay, verse 6. O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord. Okay, so the Lord is the potter which makes Israel the clay. Okay, they were in the hands of the Lord, just as the clay was in the hands of the potter. Okay, and this is establishing God's authority. It's establishing his sovereignty. Now, when we speak of sovereignty, we mean God's rule and reign. He's on the throne. He's in control. Okay, it doesn't mean predetermined. So when you hear of sovereignty, it doesn't mean that God has predetermined everything that's going to come to pass in his sovereign will. That's an incorrect definition. Sovereignty means ruling and reigning. Okay, but God does have authority over the clay. That's an important point. God has authority over man. Mankind is not autonomous. And this was a lesson that Israel needed to learn. Just because they were God's chosen people, just because they'd made a covenant with him, it didn't give them autonomy and the right to do as they please with no consequence. Because they felt that since they were the covenant people, okay, we're okay, God will never judge us we can do whatever we please and there won't be consequences okay this is what necessitated the sermon in fact this is what necessitated most of jeremiah's ministry now here's an interesting connection we see here that god is the potter and we are the clay think back to genesis how was man made okay god formed us from the dust or the dirt of the ground. Okay, that's how we made Adam. And the word formed in Genesis 2-7, that describes God creating man. It's the same Hebrew word translated potter in our text. So this is establishing God's authority and his right to do as he pleases. This is his prerogative as God's. So this word reinforced that he had every right to send judgment upon Israel. But that's not the only point. It's not even the primary point. Okay, let, let's keep moving on. Verse 7. It says, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. So this is continuing to establish God's authority and his right to judge. 
Now, what's interesting in this verse is that the terms pull up, uh, sorry, pluck up, pull down, and destroy, these are all terms that were included in Jeremiah's initial call to ministry in Jeremiah 1.10. But the point established here is that God is the potter. As the potter, he can judge. It's his call to judge, not the clay's. And it's very presumptuous of the people to think that God would not judge. Okay, but let's keep reading. Okay, verses 8 through to 10. Now, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Okay, so judgment would only be unleashed if the people refuse to repent. Okay, that's the clear message of verse 8. And this is where the metaphor breaks down because clay is not a moral being with the ability to choose. doesn't have the ability okay, to change, but mankind is such a being. Okay, and the Lord is saying, as the potter, I am the authority, but I won't judge you if you repent. Now, like the potter, I am shaping you for judgment, but if you repent, I will change my mind and turn you into a different vessel. Now, when we read of God repenting, it's not a, a change of mind acknowledging wrong, okay, like it is with us. But rather, when the Bible speaks of God repenting, it speaks of God's consistent response toward the conduct of others. So when the conduct of people change, God will deal with them differently. Okay, it's Israel who are called to change in the text, not God. So this is more of a change of treatment because of changed behavior rather than change of mind. Okay, but this is the message. God will consistently respond to our changeability. Okay, God will consistently respond to our changeability. Israel, if you repent, I won't judge. Okay, I will stop shaping you into a vessel of judgment. Okay, I have every prerogative. I have all authority to unleash or prevent this judgment. Likewise, I have every right to display mercy. But for this to happen, you must repent. So we see here, not that God has predetermined what, what will happen in some arbitrary manner, but rather he will act in a way that's consistent with his character and in accordance to how we respond to him. Okay, so think of Israel. Initially, they were on the potter's wheel. And God was crafting them into this glorious peace. They were his special covenant people. But then the clay become uncooperative, filled with impurities. So the divine potter began to turn them into a vessel of judgment. Okay, this was his choice in light of the sin of his people. Okay, but there's an invitation that they don't have to be judged if they repent. But in some sense, the character of the clay would determine what the potter would do with it. It was the potter's decision to make, but his decision would be governed by the quality of the clay. You know, if they repented, verse 8, 
judgment would not come. Now, like the nation of Nineveh, very wicked, but they repented under the preaching of Jonah and judgment was averted. And this too could happen to Israel. But if they did not repent, then they would be judged. Okay, and hence they had a decision to make. You know, the ball was in their court, so to speak. Would they repent or would they not? Okay, and God would act accordingly. Okay, he has every right to judge, every right to show mercy. It's his decision, but it's never an arbitrary decision. The basis of it is how one Response. Repentance leads to mercy. A refusal to repent leads to judgment. That's the message of this metaphor. But how would they respond to the message? Okay, this is the third point, the rejection of the message. So having received the message from the Lord, Jeremiah gets his divine marching orders. Okay, verse 11. Now therefore go to, speak to the man of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, so he went and he preached. He, he let the people know that God was shaping them into a vessel of judgment. Great evil was going to befall them because of their great evil. But there was hope. If they repented, they would be spared of judgment. Now that sounds very familiar, very similar to the gospel, doesn't it? If you repent of your sin, if you place your faith in Christ, you will be saved from your sin. But if you never do that, you'll be judged for your sin. That's the idea. So the question is, how would the people respond? Well, let's see in verse 12. It gives us the answer. And it's, it's very sad. It says, and they said, there is no hope. But we will walk after our own devices. And we will, every one, do the imagination of his evil heart. You know, that's tragic. Okay, they collectively said, no, no, we, we don't want to repent. Okay, they say there is no hope. And what is meant by that is not that they felt hopeless because they feared that God would not respond positively as he promised, but rather it seemed hopeless because they simply didn't feel it was necessary to change. Well, what's Jeremiah talking about? We don't want that. That they didn't desire it. They weren't compelled this is rock-hard stubbornness. They weren't interested in repentance. They had become so callous by their sin that there was no desire or interest in repentance at all. That's a very scary place to be. And, and this is actually quite flabbergasting. Here the Lord is extending mercy, but they say, no, no thank you, we don't want that. And the rest of the text focuses on the shocking and ludicrous nature of their rejection of the Lord and his merciful offer. Okay, verse 13 makes the point that not even the heathen are like this. Okay, the heathen, they are far more loyal to their gods. And then verse 14 uses some images from nature that the original audience would have readily understood, continuing to drive home how outrageous their rejection of the Lord was. And then verses 15 to 17 record the handing over of Israel. Okay, you, you won't repent, well then judgment will fall. You notice in verse 15, we're told they had forgotten God. And this is not like, you know, I forgot to bring my water bottle tonight. It's not a lapse of memory. But rather it's like a grieving lover. As one writer said, 
Okay, when she says you've forgotten me, she means all our shared lives and stories, our promises and joys, the whole journey we've made so far, all these things mean nothing to you. I mean nothing to you anymore. That's how Israel had treated the Lord. And since they broke the covenant and since they refused to repent, they would be judged. Okay, and so extreme was the judgment that as people made their way through the land, that they would just shake their head. That they would be astonished that Israel could act in such a way. And that they could be taken from the land. This is referenced in, in verse 17. It says they would be scattered by an east wind. And it's interesting that Babylon come from the east. But the judgment is summarized in verse 17. Okay, the Lord turned his face from them. Okay, that, that was the judgment. It says I will scatter them. As with an east wind before the enemy, I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Now, do you remember that the famous benediction recorded in the book of Numbers is spoken by Aaron? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Okay, God's face, it's linked with blessing, peace and grace. But for that to be turned from you, that is an horrific situation. And it was this that Israel would endure because they refused to repent. So this is what the potter and the clay taught Israel. It was a call to repentance. Okay, had they repented, the potter would change his plans and prevent judgment and lavish mercy upon them. That, that's his prerogative as the potter. But if they refused to repent, judgment would fall. So how the potter would shape and mold them was determined by the response of the clay. And this would have served as a vivid reminder for those who read this prophecy in exile or after exile. You know, it established beyond a doubt that, hey, this judgment, it was deserved. We, we had so many chances to repent and, and yet we didn't. But it also contained a glimmer of hope. If one repented... God's favor would return. Okay, that's how it applied and it spoke to Israel. Okay, both to those whom Jeremiah preached to and those who read the prophecy. Okay, but how can we apply this to us? I'd like to suggest three ways. Okay, number one, allow the mundane things of life to point you to spiritual realities. Okay, this whole chapter is based on spiritual realities illustrated by an everyday occurrence. Now, I'm sure Jeremiah was familiar with the potter, and it was this that was used to illustrate a spiritual reality. Okay, as mentioned in the beginning, I spoke about the Puritans and one of their types of meditation. Okay, they actually spoke of two types of meditation. They referred to deliberate meditation. And this was the regular practice that's pondering deeply on a portion of scripture, thinking it through, musing on it, recalling it to mind and thinking it through again and again. And this was their bread and butter. If you've ever read anything written by the Puritans, you will no doubt see something about meditation. They were huge on it. And understand that all Christians need this to be growing spiritually. It's not just enough to read your Bible. That's a good thing. But that's one step. Okay, there's another step after it, and it's meditation. Okay, we see that 
throughout the Bible. Remember the instructions to Joshua. Meditate in the law of God day and night. Okay, meditation is an essential spiritual discipline. And I would confidently suggest it's probably the most neglected spiritual discipline. Okay, so it's something that we need to be doing in our lives. Your meditation is a key link between okay, reading, understanding, and application. Okay, so it's like the bridge that links those two things. Okay, so that's one thing. The Puritans spoke of deliberate meditation, but they also spoke of occasional meditation. And this was taking things that we observe with our senses and allowing it to take our thoughts to spiritual and heavenly things. And this still needs to be governed by the scriptures. Okay, that's vital. But I wonder how many object lessons, how many illustrations we miss in our lives. Okay, our minds are often okay, empty. Okay, we're thinking about nothing. Or they're filled with concerns and anxieties. Or even worse, they're full of carnality. And they're rarely lifted to think on spiritual things by the things that we encounter. And that's a great shame. Now, sure, I, I want to be careful that we understand we shouldn't over-spiritualize everything. Okay, but as an example, okay, what, what does the Bible say? The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, so the creation that's all around us, it's preaching a sermon about God. Okay, it's telling us something about God. And yet how often we aren't listening to the sermon. So we would do well to, to be more spiritual in our thinking and allow the things of life where appropriate to point us to our God and to other spiritual realities. Okay, and how mundane things may illustrate some spiritual reality just like the potter and the clay. Okay, there's much spiritual sustenance for us to glean from this practice. Okay, I will stress it's secondary. Okay, scriptural meditation is the primary means. And yet, occasional meditation, it has a role to play and it's easy to do. Okay, you, you can do it anywhere at any time. And there's much spiritual gain to be made from it. Okay, and again, think about the teaching of Jesus. So much of his teaching was based on everyday practices that people were familiar with. Okay, instead of just talking about, okay, some of your hearts are, are, are really hard and you're not receiving the word. Okay, he uses this agricultural metaphor about you know, the seed that's being planted. Everyone got that. Okay, it helped them to understand a deep spiritual truth. Okay, he used this to drive home spiritual truth. So there's much benefit for us to glean from this practice. So may the Lord help us in this area. Number two. Okay, we need to be careful of spiritual smugness. Okay, spiritual smugness. Now, the rationale behind this whole metaphor is confronting the spiritual smugness of God's people. Okay, they believe that God would never judge them. Okay, we've seen this throughout the book. It's like, hey, we are God's special people. We, we entered a covenant with God. We have the temple. We have the holy city. There is no way that God would ever judge us. This is what's being confronted. God reminds them that he's the potter. They're the clay. He's in charge. And he assures them that if they don't repent, they will be judged. Okay, their privileges, their position did not give them license to sin and do as they please without consequence. Okay, and this lesson still stands for Christians. Okay, slightly different, but I believe it still stands. 
Okay, we need to be careful of spiritual smugness. So we can do this. Okay, I'm saved. I'm forgiven. So it doesn't matter how I live my life. Okay, I'm God's child. Everything is sweet. He understands that, that I sin. So I'm not concerned about it. We say, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all under the blood. So if I'm a bad husband or if I'm a bad wife, if I'm an absent parent, if I dabble in sexual sin, if I'm a lazy employee that neglects all spiritual disciplines, if I lie, if I gossip, whatever it may be, we think, you know, it's okay. I'm forgiven already. It doesn't matter. That is spiritual smugness. And God hates it. And understand, he will chasten his children that do such things. And understand, this hinders our fellowship with God. Sure, not losing your salvation, but you're not going to have sweet fellowship with God with all of this sin going on in your life. Okay, you can't be excusing and embracing sin and be close to God. It doesn't work like that. Okay, Jesus had to die for your sin. That's quite the cost. And hence it's very inconsistent to profess this great love for him and yet be blasé about sin. Okay, and the closer we get to him, the more we will hate sin. But the more we cling to sin, okay, it drives a wedge between us and Jesus. It okay, interrupts our fellowship. So although it manifests itself differently, spiritual smugness is still a danger. And the third point is autonomy never ends well. Okay, Israel had embraced autonomy. Okay, that they wanted to live their lives without God. Okay, they pushed him aside. They had forsaken him. That's the words used in the text. But what's incredibly ironic is that their supposed autonomy, their supposed freedom, ended up putting them into captivity. And that's the same for us. Okay, if you pursue autonomy, if you pursue self-reliance, self-dependence, living a life without a care for God, okay, pushing aside his expectations, doing whatever you please without any thought of God. Now, now, you're not necessarily wanting God out of your life completely, but you don't want him to be Lord. Okay, you want to be king or queen in your life. Understand, when you pursue Autonomy, your supposed independence will end up in you being enslaved to something. You will be pursuing fulfillment, happiness, meaning, worth in something or someone, and it won't work. And you'll end up becoming enslaved to some cruel master who is unable to give you what you want or need. And that is why it's better to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because understand, you and I, we're not autonomous. Why? Well, God, he made us and he has redeemed us. That means we belong to him. And the thing is, why would you want to free yourself from Jesus? Okay, think about it. Jesus is the perfect master. Okay, that there is nobody like him. Only he can provide what your soul is longing for. Okay, only he's able to save you. Only he is able to give you true and lasting peace contentment, meaning, identity, fulfillment, whatever else. Okay, if you pursue and delight in him, that, that will all be yours. Sure, that the autonomous, worldly life, it will bring you joy for a time, but the life lived with and for Jesus is far better. Far better. 
because he's everything that we need and much more. Why would you want to be independent of such a great God? You know, the autonomous worldly life, okay, it's like drinking salt water. It looks like it will satisfy your thirst, but ultimately it will make it worse. Only Jesus, the living water, can provide all that we need. Okay, why strive to live independent of that? Why not pursue him? Why not delight in him because he's everything that you need? Autonomy never ends well, but it will end well with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your word. And uh, Lord, I, I do pray uh, that, that all that I've said tonight uh, makes sense and is, uh, and is true. And that you would help us uh, to, to apply uh, the word to our lives. Father, please. Help us to, to not uh, forget uh, what we've heard as we leave. You know, help us to be uh, practicing uh, the, the discipline of meditation. And uh, please keep us safe as we travel home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.